In today's episode, we talk about the six-phase roadmap to selling your company, everything you wanted to know but didn't know who to ask. We dive deep into phase one and two of that process. To see that whole process in its entirety, download our white paper at fifthhammer.com or reach out to us at hello at fifthhammer.com. You are listening to the Fifth Hammer Growth Podcast, where we help you find harmony and imperfection as you journey towards success in life and in business. I don't know that you guys know this story, um, but as we were a year into micro formulas, um, we had a we had an annual meeting at our accountants. It was the first time we were all together as an ownership team with our accountant. We we're talking about it, and and the question came up: Is what do you want to do with this company? Where do you want to take it? And that was the first time that I started thinking about what that company could be. And immediately I went to the idea of, well, I want legacy. I want to grow something that's going to live forever and last for generations and generations. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how that concept shifts as the company grows. So regardless of where you're at today in your business and your company and what you're doing, the plans that you have set in the beginning are going to change and shift. We went from being a growing, a legacy company, looking at building our own building and expanding to what we thought we were going to go to, to an opportunity to have an exit Yeah, and being flexible in your plans opens you up for those opportunities. And I think that's one of the things that's important for everybody to understand is you might not be sitting here listening to this as, as we get into the topic today about preparing for an exit or, or planning for an exit or private equity or those sort of things. This might not even be part of your conversation today, but be open to the idea because if you, if, if you close all the doors around you, you'll never have opportunities to expand and to do the things that you never thought you were able to do. You also have an interesting story. I think that's really relevant about maybe one of the first times early on in building the company where someone asked you, what's your exit strategy? Yeah. And that kind of like rubbed you the wrong way. Yeah. So maybe tell, tell a little bit about that one. You know, so I grew up in, in, from a career standpoint, I grew up in the Silicon Valley um, from, from a business standpoint. I, my first three jobs were, in the heart of the Silicon Valley during the dot-com industry, right? Um, in fact, I remember the day that the bubble bursted and my stock went from like $86 a share to $1.32 a share in a weekend. You know, it, 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 it like that was, 
it was an incredible experience. Um, but it was interesting because back then everybody was talking about, well, what's your exit strategy? Before a company even had a revenue, they were talking exit <laughs> strategies. And it just used to piss me off because I was like, dude, let's just get through today. You know, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't. So every time since then, because of that jaded experience where so much money was thrown at Internet startups in the early 2000s, end of, end of 1990 and early 2000s, so much money was being thrown at startups and there were so, such bloated evaluations and people were making money hand over fist. I remember I was working at a company, Alteon Web Systems, and we literally had a party when our company's um, ticker showed up on NASDAQ for the first time. <laughs> and instantly... Everybody in that room were millionaires. Our, our receptionist cashed out and drove a Porsche to work the next day. You know, yeah. um, it, it was literally that I was on paper. I was a millionaire six times because I had every time the stock passed 127, I was a millionaire and I was like 27 years old. Boom, boom. Boom. Every time it passed, I was like, sweet, I'm a millionaire. Oh, I'm not anymore. Oh, I'm a millionaire. I'm not anymore. You know what I mean? And it was just absolutely a crazy experience. And some of the most amazing opportunities that I saw come and go for people. But again, everybody was talking about, well, what's your exit strategy? So you, man, I did not even think about that. You lived through this era of hypey bullshit around exits. Yeah. So when the question or, or IPOs, right? That's part of the exit strategy. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, IPOs. Yeah. yeah, right. Right, right, right. So when the question came, what's your exit strategy? Like 20 years later, <laughs> give them the middle finger. I was like, <laughs> dude, I'm building legacy. Because yeah, you because you wanted to build something real. Something real. That's interesting. Absolutely. I real. didn't understand that. I was like, well, guys, let's cash this thing out and let's make some money. <laughs> and by the way, I want a piece too. Yeah. And like, but you saw that as fake. And I would do it was total fake and hype. I remember, I remember my wife and I were going into um, a financial planner. We had stock. So I had my, here's how freaking ridiculous this was. I had my, my, Strike price given to me by Altion when I started the company was $9.52. I had an employee stock purchase plan where every quarter I could cash out every quarter. Okay. I was selling my stock $9.52. That was, I was set for two years at that price. I was selling that stock for $147 at the end of every quarter. The number of shares I bought, I put, I could put 15% of my paycheck into the employee purchase plan and they would match, right? It was stupid, ridiculous. That first quarter, all my wife's student loans were gone mm -hmm. instantly, right? The second quarter, we bought, I bought her a new wedding ring because I was like, why not? And I got my first, I got my first Breitling watch. I was like 24, 25. I didn't, I don't even think I had kids yet. At that point, like this was pre everything. Yeah. And I seriously, and so you're right. It was paper money and it was stupid, ridiculous. And so when the question came, well, what do you guys want to plan? I was like, I want legacy, right? I'm older. I was older then. I had kids. I was, we, 
things were different. I was like, I want to build something my kids can be a part of. Because that's real. But you lived the high and the low. Right. right. And so as we get into, you know, the private equity game and of, se- of selling your business, right, those are questions you're going to have to ask yourself. What are you building for? What's your exit strategy? You know, and to Ryan's point, it may not be today what it could be. You may not be in the mindset today that, you know, that would close doors or opportunities that may actually be where you need or want to go. Um, but let's jump in. Can like, I say one quick yeah, thing though, yeah. before we jump in, if you're in, uh, if you're an employee listening to this, or even just, you have plans of partnering with people, just understand that things are going to change. Um, especially as an employee, if, if you come into a company and they're selling you on the idea of legacy, that's usually all companies have at the beginning because yeah. they can't pay you as much. Usually they don't have the benefits to provide the stability. So they sell you on the idea of making growth and impact in the world. Um, and that's okay. Yeah. Just realize that don't, don't put everything you've got into this idea of legacy because when it does change, you're going to feel like the rug got pulled out from underneath you. And, and you know, that that's, just don't set yourself up for that. You know what I mean? Just just yeah. be agile in your expectations and understand that it could change. So when it does, you can sort of approach it, you know, logically and and uh, and not feel like you got cheated or anything. Well, and that's really kind of as we talked through this and and Spencer, you're trying to get us on topic, which oh, no, this is I always good. appreciate where you're at. But that first step of prepare, how do you prepare for something like this? You have to prepare yourself. You have to prepare your company. You have to prepare your employees. Yeah. Right. Mindset that there's a whole structure involved in the possibilities. And I think one of the things that was interesting for us is the moment we started thinking about an exit was the moment that we told ourselves we could be a billion dollar company. Hmm. Because at that point, when we started looking at our trajectory and we're like, we're going to be a billion dollar company. I knew that in order to accomplish that we needed help. Right. Right. And so there's reasons why there's, you know, and, and part of that preparation is why are you doing this? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Why are you trying to find an exit or, or what is the purpose behind this? And, it, and we talk about why all the time. Um, but for me, the why became in order to accomplish that goal, we need help we're going to need a financial resources to come in and do an injection in this company to take it to the next level. And I believe that's what we accomplished. Did that mean that as owners, we cashed out? Absolutely. We were paid for the work and effort that we did to build an amazing company. And we put it in the hands of, of a private equity firm that was going to take it to the next level and then sell it again. Mm -hmm. Right. Because their goal is to, to grow it and sell it. And, and so as you look at this, understand that why, and I appreciate you saying that Dave, because we did, we sold the story. We sold, we're going to change the world. We sold, I did it too, to our employees. Yeah, I did it. And, and, and then all of a sudden we sold the company. I literally stole half a team from another company on the idea of making growth and impact. And I wasn't lying to them. This is what we really believed. And then just only a few months later, we said we were selling. So it's just realizing that's what I wanted to say. You said it. You said what I wanted to say, which was there's a reason behind it. And don't fall into the trap of assuming it's because of greed, because that's that's not 
the reason. Right. You know, it could be right. sometimes, but I'm saying like, just get, just set your set healthy expectations. Realize that things can change. Also, if you are signed, if you have signed something that says you're going to get some equity, it's never going to be as much as you think it's going to be. Um, I've been told that by a lot of people that have experienced exits after we went through an exit. Um, so anyways, I just want to set expectations. If you're an owner or a partner, but especially for employees that might be listening to this, I think it's really healthy for people to understand. Well, and that's really, that's really phase one. That's yeah. really part one, right? Is preparing yourself, setting your own expectations and then doing the same, yeah. right? After selling a company for nine figures, Ryan is the founding CEO and partner, me as the chief of staff, lead project manager on that exit. And then Dave, you as the CMO really helping like coordinate the troops and keep people afloat during the time, you know, we've found there's six phases, right? To this entire process today, we're just going to focus on phase one and two, but that's phase one prepare. And whether you're a partner, you're, you know, really deep in running the project or you're just an employee, like you got to prepare yourself for something like this. And, um, that's, that's the first part of preparation, prepare yourself, um, preparing the company, you know, there's a lot to do in that and preparing the team, right? Having, I think the biggest, the biggest pieces for us were, were having a CFO, having a, a financial team that and uh, other outside financial partners was really critical and having an inside chief of staff project manager that could help run it really took a lot of the burden off of the ownership team. Without those two people as an ownership team, you will die and it will be 80 hours a week plus your day job. Right. But because those two people were in place, like it still took a lot out of the ownership team, but not, not near as much as it would have. Yeah. And I think that, you know, people say, what would you do different if you were to do it over again? I think for me, I would have hired the right CFO earlier. Right. Um, We got to the point where they couldn't even utilize our first two years of the company because our financials were such a disaster. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, in, in, in trying to understand from a preparation standpoint, any business that is, if you're getting close to a million to 5 million in revenue, you need to have a CFO and you need to have somebody in place that can really tell the story from a financial, the numbers have to tell the same story that you're telling uh, the, the world from your company. Right. And it's interesting because that's happened. And I used to, I used to be in this mentality of like the, it didn't matter as much. Yeah. Right. Because and, and cash changes everything. If you're cash flowing, if your company's cash flowing, you can hide a lot of mistakes. But it wasn't until I realized that your numbers have to tell the story of your company the same way you tell the story of your company. And the growth trajectory. Yeah. 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 And I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting point is you're inside your company as you're preparing your team, your company, you need to be able to prepare who is going to lead this project. Um, a project manager, chief of staff, Spencer, you were brilliant through this process. I mean, the what you and I learned together was phenomenal um, during this. And it took a little longer than anticipated because we had a lot to learn. A CFO, but also if you have, if you have an ownership team, meaning there's more than one of you, and most companies do, you have to make sure you have a spokesperson for your company. You have to have one person telling that story. And then the others can be brought in to be introduction, but you have to have one voice um, because it can get cluttered if you have too many people trying to, too many cooks in the kitchen, right? You want to streamline this. You want to be very highly focused in that process. Um, And you need to be able to ask yourself, why are you doing this, right? 
how much are you willing to sell? And what's and the how much meaning like how much equity? Yeah. How much what percentage of the company? How much are you giving up? Right. And at what price? And how much are you willing to stay along? To because once you sell, you go from an owner to an employee. Yeah. And how much are you willing to stay around to to make that happen? Right. And those are some serious questions that you need to ask yourself as 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 an owner of a company is is how do you prepare yourself? And any good broker is going to ask you those questions mm -hmm. because as they go try to find a deal for you, they're going to need to know that to know what the right potential partners are going to be for that deal. Well, I want to call something out you said, because I think this I didn't realize this. Um, probably most savvy entrepreneurs know this by now. But when you say at what price? Company multiples vary just like a housing market or a stock market or probably even more volatile than in some cases. So pay attention to that. There are resources out there. Um, there's a company used to be called Bridgewater. They're called Drive Point now. They have a newsletter that they track EBITDA and uh, revenue. revenue multiples. Um, so you can see like right now they're climbing, but they're lower than they've been in a long time. So it might not be, you know, as you're looking to sell and you're preparing to sell, pay attention to those things. And they're different per industry, right? We were in yeah. the e-commerce consumer health industry. I'm helping my dad evaluate what that would look like in a service-based uh, like construction industry. And the multiples are different, right? So just find find those resources and stay, stay plugged into those. Um, but that's, again, one of the other critical parts of preparation is finding a good broker, finding good partners. So you need to have, you need to answer these questions for yourself, prepare yourself. You need to prepare your internal team. Right, make sure you have the right pieces, but then you need an external team. And like, there's a handful of really critical partners that can make or break your deal or make your deal way more valuable. Uh, and one is the right broker or the right investment banker. They call them a lot of different things, but it's the same thing. Someone that's really going to represent your deal um, and help broker the deal. And then the other is a really strong legal uh, attorney partner um, that can help with the contracts and all the paperwork and all the documents. Well, and it's interesting because that's how we got that's how we got started in the process of selling microbe. I went to an event, yep, um, and I met Jimmy. Amazing, amazing individual. You know, he's uh, um, he he he's like VP of mergers and acquisitions at Rothschild, um, and his he only focuses on the consumer health space, so he's highly targeted. And not only that, but Six months before I met him, he just did an exit of one of our one of the companies that are, are not our competitors, but just a company in our space yeah. that had an amazing exit. And and it was interesting as I met as I met Jimmy and we started talking. He started giving us an idea of what could happen, right? And and the cool thing was is he was so integral into this space and brokering our company in this space that he knew exactly what was going on. Because I started looking at multiples and I started trying to calculate what our company was based on what based other on, people had sold for based on what other people have sold for and where our revenues were and yeah. where everything was at. And we were thinking, man, 500 million. We get him 500 million because <laughs> we asked the question, what would you sell for? Right. What would we do? We started asking ourselves those and we're like 500 million. That's where we're going to be. And and Jimmy came in and he helped set the right expectation. And I'll tell you. The first time he asked us that question, we were talking about things. He said, guys, 200 million, that's your number. 
Oh, so he said that from the beginning. Said it from the beginning. Interesting. He said 200 million. That's your number. Based on what I know right now, that's your number. And that's what we're going to go for. And we had to, we had to reset all of our expectations. Yeah. And then we were like, well, that's still good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but it was interesting because we got exact, the right guy will tell you the number and get you the number. Yeah. We got exactly what he said from the beginning. Yeah. He won't hype it up. He won't no. overinflate it. No, but he'll yeah. help set that expectation. Yeah. And he'll educate you on how he got there. Understanding EBITDA was, I mean, think about this. Did we even say the word EBITDA before we met Jimmy in our company? No, nope. <laughs> not at all. Not internally. No. And now I freak, we say it all the time, <laughs> right? Understanding how, understanding how other people evaluate your company, not only understanding the multipliers, but understanding how um, companies evaluate companies and yeah. what they look for was the big learning curve for us. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, and that's such a, it's such a critical thing, like finding the right broker, the right investment banker. Like if you, if you get that wrong, there's so many things that could go sideways in your deal. And you touched on this a little bit, Ryan, but I, I, as I went through and kind of pared out some of this knowledge, like to me, there's four critical questions to ask and things to look for when you're trying to identify the right broker. And you mentioned one of them, are they industry specific, right? Have they done a deal or multiple, preferably multiple deals in this industry with these types of businesses before, right? And are they sell side only? Are they only going to represent me as the seller, not also the buyer, right? And that's critical too, because then they're going to be really, truly 100% your best interest at heart. And then third, are they performance-based only, right? We, we didn't pay them a dime until the deal closed, which is high risk for them because deals can go sideways and haywire all the time. The last minute, right? But he was consulting and guiding us basically almost a year before we even cl closed, right? And we didn't pay him at all until the deal closed. That's, that's the other one. And then number four, the last piece here is what's their reputation? Like who recommends them? Who has had experience them? And this kind of plays into the, the industry, but we had multiple people recommending this broker, seeing that he had just done deals very similar to what we thought we could do in similar businesses and came highly recommended. So if you're, if you are, Hey, this is a journey I want to go on, or I'm considering like asking those four questions as you evaluate, or you try to find a broker is critical. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting as you start talking about that team is how many people are involved, right? And the other key part of this, we've talked about a broker, but the other key part of this is your, um, M and a lawyer, yeah. right? And your broker and your lawyer have to have a relationship. We were fortunate that we, that when Jimmy came in, and he not said, just a like a really good working relationship. Yeah, ideally, they have to work together because we were fortunate. Uh, when Jimmy came in, he's like, "No, no, no, no! All you need is Ariel." Yeah, I mean, the dude was phenomenal, and they work tirelessly. They are. Oh man, they're machines. Oh my gosh, <laughs> they they put it. I, I'm talking. We get they, that bag. They put everybody to shame as far as a work work ethic. And that's again the value of a good broker. They typically know the best. M&A lawyers, they typically know the best uh, tools for a data site, which is you're gonna, we'll talk about in future episodes, but they know because they've done this before, multiple times before, and they're gonna bring you recommendations. And yes, you can have a say in the matter, but if you find the right broker, they streamline this entire 
six-phase process for you because they've done it before. Yeah. Um, I guess the last piece on on really the preparation phase on phase one is now you you're prepared right mentally your your team is put together you have an external partners and now it's like you actually start doing some of the preparation stuff and for the size of company and size of deals that we have we had um, what's going to be critical is what what they call reverse due diligence meaning you are doing due diligence on yourself so you're hiring an outside financial firm to do an audit on your financials, on your books, and put together a Q of E quality of earnings report before you even go to market. And then at the same time, you're working with your broker team and they're putting together uh, a pitch deck or a teaser um, and a SIM. And you do that preparation up front so they have the marketing collateral to go market your business to their networks. But at the same time, you have the financial uh, package to back it up. Um, before you even present the deal to any potential buyers. Yeah, again, you, so, those numbers, your financial package has to tell the story of your company in a way that your investors that are coming in, the buying pool coming exactly. in can look at and understand because they don't know freaking you and they see a thousand deals all the time. And that's the critical part as you as you rely on your team that you've pulled together, the, the broker, the lawyers, and everybody coming together is next is building your buying pool, right? And and it was an interesting process to go through as we understood what they did. Once that sim was done, I mean, they sent it to a hundred potential buyers. Yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the first part. You don't always see this if you have the right broker. You don't see what they're doing on the other side because they're just so good at it, right? And they built basically a one-page memo teaser that they send out to a bunch of people and then the interested parties like say yes i want to know more and in that they don't always disclose who what the business is they like lar largely they don't they just say hey a business this size doing about this much you know with this gross potential in this industry and then people say hey I i'm interested in looking at that as a as an investment or a buy and they signed an nda Right, and then they get the confidential information memorandum. They like to use fancy words in the M and A world, but SIM for short, right? And that is the pitch deck. That's the story of the opportunity. And once they get that, then they can actually make a an initial view or an initial offer and say, "Hey, yeah, I'm actually interested in this, and I'm going to put a verbal offer on the table, basically, you know, that's non-binding." Um, and that and that's how it happens. And we were largely not involved in that process. No. We helped put together the financial package and the pitch deck, and they did all the the work, right? And they reached out to hundreds of companies. I think we got back. We'll have to look at the exact numbers. Like eighty plus yeah. people that were interested that signed the NDAs that received the pitch deck. And then from there we had like twenty nine. So we had twenty nine people come and sign an NDA. Yep. So 29 companies signed an NDA and it's a mix because you have to understand there's two different type of buyers in the consumer health space that we were in. There are, and this is typically the case in any, any industry, you're going to have a financial institution that's looking to buy you, or you're going to have a strategic partner that's interested by you. And there's totally two different plays. A strategic partner is a, is a, for us in the consumer health space supplement industry, it would be a larger supplement company that wanted our products to become part of their product line, right? right. So that's a strategic buyer. Um, the interesting thing about that is Jimmy just 
when we started talking to him and I was introduced to Jimmy by the CEO of a company that sold to a strategic partner, right? The other side of this is you have the opportunity to sell to a financial institution. This is a private equity firm. The goal of a private equity firm is much different than a strategic partner. It's, it's a step towards that. So they're going to, they're going to take you, they're going to see the potential of your company and they're going to grow you to two X, three X, four X. And then they're going to sell you to a strategic partner, a bigger one, a bigger, yeah. right. Yeah. And so there's two different buying pools as you're looking through this. And so it was interesting because we presented, I should say, Jimmy presented us to a number of those, right? And and he, he was just getting it out there. We had 29 people come back, 29 different companies come back, sign the NDA and receive the SIM. Right. As of, as from there, we had five, from that 29, we had five that gave us an initial verbal offer. And then we selected four to go to the next stage. Yeah. And that next stage was the interview process, the due diligence yeah, side on their deep side. Deep due diligence. It's that's deep, phase three. Deep due diligence. And that's why it's selective. And that was an interesting. I remember that moment where Jimmy, the ownership team, myself, and I think our CFO, we were we were in a room. It's okay, here's the verbal offers and here's the five companies and here what they look like. And I think there was one strategic and four financial. And um, he's like, guys, whoever you select to go to the next phase, you got to know like this next piece, well, like it's very intensive. You're doing in-person interviews. You know, this was kind of at the tail end of COVID. So a lot of it became virtual, but hours and hours of interviews. This is where you populate. Yeah, we'll get into the phase three at a future episode, but it's, it's, it's a serious. Only select those that you would actually say yes to if they put a final offer in front of you. If you wouldn't, then don't say, don't allow them to go to the next phase because otherwise it won't be worth your time or their time. Yeah. I remember one strategic, I thought it was strategic, a strategic partner. It was basically a, a like a marketing, it was like golden hit, like a golden hippo. Yeah. They just buy brands and they use their marketing arm to, to grow them. And then they, sell so they them. were actually positioned as a financial partner. They were oh, they a were. private equity firm, but what the unique thing that they had was they had their own kind of marketing agency gotcha. as part of their firm okay. where they would help amplify brands. Gotcha. And that was their unique kind of spin. Yeah. But, but yeah, so of the five, you know, the owners were like, well, we'd say yes to any of these four. And then we moved. moved and on. and but, that thought process on our end was we looked at the companies that were looking at us and as a whole, we looked at their track record. Who, who did they acquire recently? We looked at what were some of the things that they have done since then, once those companies were acquired um, and kind of what are their general philosophies? Right. We had, I remember we had one company in the mix of the, of the 20 of the, of the 29 or that came down to the five. And I think the reason why we didn't select this one is because philosophically they did not match what we were trying to do from a natural health supplement standpoint. Right. They were more of a pharmaceutical company that wanted to get into supplements and it went against the core of who our company was from the beginning. And so you have to do your own due diligence to do that selection process. So you're not wasting people's time, but it was, right. where was their verbal? And they the, were, they were also, they were also an international company. So it was going to require, we would be their U S entity and presence. And it would have required quite a bit of international travel, which wasn't something that was really high on a, a list of 
success measurements or, or value for the ownership team, right? Where did their so, verbal offer rank in the five? They were all very similar. They were I mean, all similar. Okay. Jim, Jimmy know. did a good job of of managing that structure and making sure that people were all in the right and and I think that right that's space. a great question because as owners or you know even uh, equity partners or employees as you hear exits someone sold for 50 million or someone sold for a billion or someone sold for 350 million it's easy to like oh well what revenue were they at and what's that multiple and if we had that multiple where would we sell for that's the wrong game to play absolutely because what you don't know as part of that deal is how much of that was actually cash up front how much of that what rollover equity was in that you don't know all those little details right and so you start playing mind games with yourself oh we can sell for this um and that means it's going to be this in the bank well, that's not that's yeah. not the there's a really the good episode you turned us on to with uh was it uh with Hormozzi talked about his deal hmm. and how it was like it was basically he's now sort of admitting it was kind of a trash deal yeah Hormozzi sat down with the guys on my first million and that's broke down and kind of shared the details of his deal and how he you know didn't actually sell at the right time and yeah. it wasn't a good deal yeah um but it was still good for him you know right um, but but the my point and point that out is if, if you go find that episode you can hear some more deal dynamics right and yeah. understand yeah, that when absolutely. you see somebody sold for x 100 million they didn't just get that deposited yeah. into their bank account in fact that was a big thing i learned from this is there's some like and probably you get into that there's some like rollover cash that that gets pulled out immediately yeah but yeah. are we yeah. still in phase one by the way so we're, well, this we're kind phase, of phase one. Yeah, we've talked phase one preparation. We've talked phase two, which is marketing your deal, b building a buyer's pool. So will you just real quick tell everybody how long did phase one take? Well, phase one, from the time we actually met our broker, which was early um, kind of spring, um, it took us until we, until we actually started sending teasers out and had a sim ready to actually send out probably took us six months, what, April, May, June, July, August. Yeah, yeah September, took us about six months. Of like part constant of that, work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and especially on the financial side too, because we started that work in May, June of really doing our own reverse due diligence on our finances. And then at, in parallel, I was leading with our broker the efforts on the SIM. And so that work was all in tandem happening at the same time. And I think- Yeah, it took a good six months. I think yeah. Jimmy- Jimmy typically identifies that uh, that prep phase, depending on your financial situations and where things are at, to be one to three months. If you have a really solid CFO that has everything lock, stock, and barreled when you go into this process, it's a lot faster. Okay. Yeah. Um, our financials and and the due diligence we had to do on our financials extended that longer than longer than probably well longer than what for what we needed, but longer than average. Mm, right. Um, the next phase, that buying pool phase. Um, those are when deadlines come in because they send that they send that teaser out to everybody and they're like we have a deadline um, of NDAs in you know 30 days and this is again where a good broker matters matters so much because they're the ones setting the deadline to potential buyers saying hey we're collecting initial offers or we're collecting you know signed NDAs he he sets deadlines and drives the buyer pool if you didn't have that and you were trying to do that all on your own and do all the negotiations it'd be another level yeah. of exhaustion and also just experience you don't have yeah so he set deadlines 
for the companies to get NDAs. He set deadlines for the companies to put in initial offers. And he set deadlines on us for for it to be able to accept initial offers and go to the next stage, which is that extreme due diligence phase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So those, if you look at those on average, it's one to three months for your preparation phase. And then about one to two months for that buying pull phase as we get into this. And, And for, for you viewers out there trying to track this, we actually have a download, a white paper that we created that we're talking through these points. You could go to fifthhammer.com and download the white paper um, and really kind of get into this. And, and, and we'll be sharing our experiences through this process over the next, the course of the next several episodes, talking about this white paper and the exit that we had and the experiences we had going through it. I was hoping you'd plug that. And if you have questions, just reach out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've done this once. The broker we worked with has done this dozens of times. We've tried to document the process to simplify it. But we've also, you know, watched and reached out and researched stories of others that have done this and gone through the process um, and, yeah, have resources that are available.